Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, thank you for joining us today. I'm Daniel Strain, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jay Forrest. Hello. And Lee Anderson. Hello. Uh, thank you guys for being with me, and thank you to the listener for listening to us today. Here at the Spiritual Naturalist Society, our motto is happiness through reason, compassion, and practice. But when we say compassion, do we mean self-compassion? What about ourselves? Today we're going to be talking about the important role of self-compassion in our practice. So, uh, Jay, this was actually your idea for a topic. So uh, how about we give you uh, opening words on this? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that one of the difficulties is we need to understand the difference between self-compassion and self-pity. Mm, interesting. Uh, I think many times that when you hear self-compassion, they think, well, what, you're going to have a pity party and, oh, poor me. But that's not what compassion is about. Compassion is not about feeling sorry for yourself. It's about understanding that you're human, understanding that we all make mistakes, taking responsibility for those mistakes, but then letting them go. So often I think what happens is we mess up, we do something we shouldn't have, say something we shouldn't, and we sit there and continue to beat ourselves up over it. Mm. And unfortunately, that makes us so that we don't move on. We don't grow. It actually, if you take a plant and you keep beating the plant, it's not going to grow. I mean, those are not conditions for, for growth. And as human beings, yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we should take responsibility for them. But once we understand the lesson of what we did, you know, we did something, we say, okay, what can I learn from this? That self-reflection that the Stoics talk about, they, they advocate doing it every day. Uh, a lot of them I know, the, the Stoics, what they do is that in the evening, they do a self-reflection. What, what have they done? What can they learn from it? And then when the day is over, let the thing be over. Yeah, and a part of that is uh, where have I fallen short? Right, exactly. But it's not beating yourself over the head with it. It's so that you, like you said, can learn from it. And it's, there's, there's two sides of this. They're not beating yourself over the head, but there's also not the pity party where, oh, poor me, I'm the victim. Because the minute you get into the victim mentality, which is what self-pity is, poor, poor, pitiful me, then what happens is you sit there and you focus on your failures and you depower yourself. The minute you become a victim, the minute that you take that role, then circumstances control you. The situation controls you. You know, I've, I've run into, in, in my life, a number of people who had a bad relationship. And what happens is these bad relationships, they re keep reliving them. They get stuck in a circle of how they abused me, how they did this, and how they did that. And what I tell people is forgiveness is not about letting the other person off the hook. It's about letting yourself off the hook. Because as long as they are influencing you, you're thinking about them, what they did, how bad they did it to you, what happens is you get in a cycle where they 
still control you. The circumstance is over and done, but the control of that person continues because you've taken the position of a victim, not a victor. You are not, you can't control what somebody's done to you, but you can control how you respond to it. And that's what frees you up to have self-compassion and to move on and to have a change in your life. Because if you keep living the situation, you're living in the past. And that person still controls you. Lee had mentioned something about, um, when we brought, we were talking about this topic, uh, Lee, you had mentioned something about um, how we get into a situation where we're comparing ourselves to others all the time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. And, you know, as Jay was saying, I think that that inner dialogue that we have with ourselves is what we deal with constantly all day long, no matter what situations arise. So when you're going to work and you're feeling bad about something, unfortunately, what you're looking at is how well you think other people are doing. And you do a lot of comparing yourself to others, no matter what the situation is, whether it's being a parent, being a responsible pet owner, or anything like that. And I think what we forget, especially as a spiritual practice, is that where compassion is concerned, we know we should be compassionate towards other people. And when someone else is having exactly the same problem that we may be having, we carry on a dialogue with them uh, that's so much different in tone. We try to understand what they're going through. We try to tell them, you're going to get through this. Things are not as bad as they seem. And like you said, you know, reflect on it and then move on. But we are our own worst critic when it comes to turning that dialogue on ourselves and we don't seem to have quite as much ability uh, to be compassionate with ourselves. Mm. And so it's something you just really, really have to work on every time you hear that, you know, inner voice criticizing you. And I think even self pity, I think is one of those conversations that you need to stop there and say, Hey, okay, you're feeling sorry for yourself, but you know, you can get past this and um, you know, you're doing okay. You are going to get past this. So that's a great point. On. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I, I like to think of it like when we undertake a spiritual practice, you're basically saying, I'm going to, Take this person who happens to be yourself, and I'm going to lovingly guide and teach them to help them grow. So it's almost like you you bisect yourself in a way, and you become your own caretaker. And uh, as such, you want to be a loving caretaker. Uh, when I first uh, heard Jay's idea for our topic today, um, one of the things that came to my mind was that... Um, in all of these philosophies we talk about that have to do with self-development um, and uh, cultivation of things within yourself, improving yourself, improving your life, um, whether it's Buddhism or Stoicism or any of these other uh, kinds of traditions, there's always this danger that they can sound like blaming the victim 
because once you acknowledge that there is that you have a certain thing you can control and that there is a way to cope with or deal with something better than we have been before that automatically implies that there was something we weren't doing <laughs> that we could have been doing, or there's something that, you know, and, and so you start getting these ideas of fault. Oh, well, wait a minute. That means it's my fault. So it's real easy for these philosophies, these ideas to sound like it's about trying to fi figure out whose fault it was. Well, I don't think it's very helpful to think about fault. Instead, it's helpful to think about what opportunities do I have to become empowered? You know, it's actually good news. It means there is something we can do, and that's what we got to focus on. And Jay, you mentioned the past. Uh, you know, the Stoics like to really delineate, you know, what is in my control and what isn't. And that gives you a great peace of mind when you when you keep that in mind and you keep that focus. Well, you know, we often think, okay, well, the things I do, the choices I make are in my control. But what we forget about is the timeline. We're not in all places in the timeline at once. We're moving along. We're in the present only at this moment. So the things I did two seconds ago are no longer in my control, just like as if somebody on the other side of the planet did them. That doesn't mean we don't take responsibility and try to learn from what we did, but it does mean that the, the time for worrying about that is over because the work, the function of worry is to concern yourself in a productive way with the matters you need to concern yourself with so that you can make the right choices. But once you're talking about the past, that function no longer applies. So you just cease that function because those things are in the past, they're done. And so uh, that's where I think, we can get away from the blame, the self-blame. And instead, it's a very future-oriented philosophy when you're dealing with a philosophy of self-improvement. Yeah, I was just looking at uh, Marcus Aurelius said, do not dwell on troubles from the past. Neither the future nor the past should weigh on you, only the present. <laughs> very Buddhist, isn't it? <laughs> well, there, there seems to be some similarities between that, but... Also, it was during the Axel Age, and they also had influences in, in China that were similar. Uh, Taoism, for example. It actually is kind of interesting that it was seemed like a worldwide phenomenon during that time, the Buddha, Confucius, the Stoics, philosophy, things like that. But uh, there's actually quite a few different things to unwrap here. Going back to what Lee was saying, if you, that inner dialogue that we have, think about it for a minute. If you talk to someone, if you talk to a friend the way that you talk to yourself, you would defriend yourself. <laughs> we really are ruthless when it comes to ourselves. We say things to ourselves that are simply would be inappropriate to say to a friend or a loved one. We would never say it, but yet we say that to ourselves. We're so critical. We're so uh, demeaning and, and sometimes just downright rude to ourselves. And I like how you said it, Daniel, we need to be our own caretaker. The first thing we have to do is accept ourselves as we are. Frail, human, flawed creatures. Mm -hmm. The problem is we do not allow ourselves that. We don't allow ourselves to make mistakes. We don't allow ourselves to be not perfect. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things yeah, that you don't take on a spiritual practice because as soon as you say, I'm taking this on, now I'm a Buddha. Now I'm the enlightened being. The whole reason of having a spiritual practice is because there's some work to be done. Yeah. But in order to do the work, you first have to accept who you are. The problem is if you don't do that, if you don't accept yourself with all the flaws, all the mistakes, all the things that you, you know, you fail at, if you don't start with that, you're going to start tinkering from the, from the mindset of, I, I do this wrong, I do that wrong, I do this wrong, I do this wrong, I do this wrong. You know, you're going to end up in that cycle of self-criticism. You're going to completely deflate your tires and you're not going anywhere. Well, you know, that relates to a really broad issue in, in uh, these philosophies is that um, this whole idea of focus of trying to draw these judgments about what should be, what ought to be, uh, how things are supposed to be, quote unquote, yep. instead of looking at what is and appreciating and living in what is and making peace with what is and coming exactly. to terms with what is and being at one with it and flowing with it rather than having this fantasy version. And it's not just of yourself, but everything in life could be that way. You know, um, there ought not be this situation in the world. And, well, and there, they should have this and this should have happened. And these other people should have treated me this way instead of that way. All of the shoulds and, and everything, you just set those aside and slowly over time, you can learn to change your focus and your value system so that you're now flowing with what is. And that's what the Stoics really mean when they say walking in accord with nature. But see, that's the, that's the difficulty most people have right there mm-hmm. is you have to start without the judgments. And the only way to start without the judgments is accept yourself as you are that's the beginning of the spiritual journey because otherwise you've just divided yourself between the ideal you and the real you. And what are you doing when you do that with the judgments? You're looking at your failures. Well, what you focus on, you become, so you're actually making it worse because you're focusing on what you're not doing, what you're failing at. And the focus, then you're reinforcing the failures. I went through a lot of uh, uh, situations where I would start to try to develop a habit. And uh, if I ran into a problem with it, I, uh, you know, faltered or, you know, didn't do it right or, or messed up or something like that. I would feel like, um, like I had now ruined my streak I had going, what's the use? And then I would just say, Oh, you know, screw it. And then I would just sort of give up because I had messed up that one time. I thought I'd ruined it. And I had to, it took me a long time to get out of that mindset where now it's more like, um, you know, you're kind of like, uh, on a sailing boat. Sometimes the wind pushes the other way, but you just kind of keep your course, you know? And so, yeah, you mess up, but then you don't punish yourself or try to catch up or anything like that. You just continue on with the, the practice and there'll be faults in there and there'll be gaps, but that's okay. You just keep going. And then over time, the gaps will diminish. And It reminds me of a book. 
uh, it says the obstacle is the way. Hmm. It's uh, on stoicism. And stop and think about it. We always think the practice is to try to do it right. No, that's not the practice. The practice is to do it and fail. Mm-hmm. We learn more by failure than we do by success. If you're successful, you're not going to learn anything. If you're <laughs> spiritual practice, you start your spiritual practice, you meditate perfectly, you say all the right things, you do all the right things, you're not learning anything. Mm. That's not the way. That's not the path. The path is the failure. It's like when you're doing the meditation breathing. The point of the meditation breathing is not to bring you peace of mind. It's for you to learn how your mind works. Well, how do you learn what your mind does? You follow your breath. All of a sudden, you, you have a, your mind goes after you know, the grocery list. You know, Got to make sure I get that. You're beginning to see what your mind's focusing on. It's actually the mistake that you're actually learning from, not mm-hmm. the following of the breath. If you just follow the breath perfectly, you're not going to learn anything about your mind. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, oh I've tried to meditate. I can't. I just can't meditate. Right, and because they're expecting that ideal. person who can't meditate. <laughs> you can. It's just that what you're defining as meditation right. is an unrealistic thing. Yeah. And the, the point of meditation is not to, to, you know, shut up the thoughts and be completely zombatized. That's not the point of meditation. The, the point of meditation is to learn to know thyself, if you want to use the, uh, mm. the, the cliche in philosophy. Know thyself. And the way to know thyself is to pay attention Find out what your mind is doing. For an example, interesting thing during meditation sometimes, you'll see yourself drawn to a particular thought. One particular thought keeps coming up. Well, that means there's an issue there. There's more than, it's not just something that randomly comes up because it keeps coming up. It's an unresolved issue. Now you can go into that unresolved issue and deal with that unresolved issue. Your mind is actually telling you what your problems are, but you're never listening. It's like our body is the same thing. It tells us what's going on in our mind, but we don't listen to our bodies. Lee, you've mentioned uh, before your, your walks in nature and things that you do as a practice like that. What kinds of, uh, what kind of things do you learn about, your, about yourself and your thoughts and what kind of experiences have you had in that kind of practice? That's um, one of the times... I think more so than anything, because when I get out on my walks, it helps me to get away from where I normally am. I meditate in my room, you know, at home, but I'm home all the time and everything. If I go out for a walk, I think just the change in environment disconnects my mind from everything that's normally happening so that it seems to me that I start thinking more about esoteric type things and a lot of times what I find you sit down and you try and meditate and like Jay said a certain thought will keep coming it's amazing to me that when I get out and do the nature walks a lot of times thoughts just disappear and I'll be walking and suddenly, you know, it's like, wow, I don't really have any thoughts in my head and it's just a nice mind clearing type exercise. Hmm. Do you ever uh, notice when things do come up though? Does that tell you something about something that was on your mind that maybe you didn't realize before? 
Yeah, and, and uh, being new at the practice and everything, those are the times that I wonder whether I'm doing things right because I may be halfway through a walk, and, and I usually know how much time it's going to take to walk, but I'll get a thought and I will think, oh, maybe that's important. Maybe I need to go back. Maybe I need to stop my walk and go back and write that down or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm struggling slightly with making sure that I can identify what's a thought I need to work on and, you know, what I can just let go and keep on walking and things like that. So that's something I'm working on right now. That's really interesting. And you know what you said about the uh, changing of the environment and what that does, what you're doing there is essentially the same as why people make temples and sacred spaces. We had an episode on sacred spaces a while back. And uh, when you set up a special place, you're, you're trying to incorporate environment and the sensations of that environment to tell your mind we're now with it. This is a, a special thing. You know, we're setting aside these other thoughts you've basically made nature, the natural environment around where you are into your temple. <laughs> and that's not, you know, Druids do that, of course, and many traditions have done that kind of thing. And so that's just really fascinating to me, uh, that concept. Well, and the, as you said, the one thing that's different, though, is when you set up something in your home, it pretty much stays the same. And you do know you need to get into that certain mindset when you get there. The difference with nature is that everything is always changing. So when I'm walking, I'm noticing what has changed from day to day out there too. And it's going to be minor changes, you know, most of the time, but my attention is drawn to that. Um, even though there's slight changes rather than what my internal thoughts are. Yeah, I think there's a difference because when we think of nature versus an altar, an altar is an inanimate object. When you're out in nature, it's actually a communion. You're actually sharing together with living reality. So it's mm -hmm. actually like being with Mother Nature. You know, you're actually, it's something more than just sit and meditate. There's actually, a fellowship going on between you and nature. There's a give and there's a take, there's a learning, there's that energy flow. You breathe in the air, that fresh air, that scenery and everything like that. And it, it brings you into communion with something living. And I think that's important. I think that that uh, really robust uh, panorama of sensations uh sights and sounds and and movements and smells and all that they they help to um let us get into this mindset of direct feeling without distracting thought direct uh kind of like a, an animal does you know when you look at a a, a cat doing its hunting it's not self-concerned it's not uh it doesn't have any uh, sense of uh, distraction about worries about the future or the past. It's right there in the moment, right there in the present. And there's this direct experience. It's kind of a similar thing as when you're doing your breathing meditation, when you're trying to get to that uh, vocabulary-less, symbol-less direct experience of sensation and i think nature really helps with that because there's just such this robust amount of things going on 
And that also helps us with self-compassion. Because one of the things that uh, seems counterintuitive, but we tend to be selfish. We tend to focus on ourselves. Getting out in nature makes us get a bigger picture, the broader perspective. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson calls about the, the cosmic perspective. Mm-hmm. there's something bigger than just us and our little problem. Cause we think that our problems, you know, nobody else is going through and I'm going through. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody on the planet, you know? And, and what happens is we close in on ourselves, which feeds off that, that negativity and mm-hmm. going out in nature or any of the spiritual practices, what the idea is to expand our consciousness give us a bigger awareness, a broader perspective, the bigger picture, so that we're not focused in on me, myself, and I. You know, it's not just about us. We're about a, a community of living things. And this, what's this planet about is about us growing together, evolving together, becoming better, becoming healthier, becoming more spiritual, more connected. And that walk in nature is a great way to do that, to get out of the, the negativity and, and the self. Because it, it seems weird. There's a difference between selfishness and self-compassion. Selfishness is when you fold in on yourself and you think that everything deals with you. Self-compassion is realizing the things that are under your control and the things that aren't under your control. Letting those things, and the Stoics called it, indifference, the indifferent things, let them go. You can't control them. You can't control your neighbor. You can't control other people. Let it go. Give yourself a break. You can't control these things. I think a lot of the blame comes, we're trying, we're blaming ourselves for things that aren't under our control. Yeah. And, you know, I look at it like you, you're kind of like, um, like I, I, I never say uh, compassion for others. I, I like the phrase compassion for all beings. Yes. And then what that does, it puts you in this kind of third person perspective. And then when you look down on everything and you're like, you're looking over everything, there's you in the mix. You treat that person the same way you treat any other person. You tell them the same things you tell anybody else. And you, if, if something were not something you'd want for your loved one, then you need to be your loved one. And, and, very good to yourself and so um there's another uh, you know thing that um really is there's this connection between self-compassion and compassion in general and that is that um you know if we were going to go back to the stoics and use them an example they have a thing that's called appropriation or expansion (laughs) the greek word is oikiosis that's not Real important, mm-hmm. but it's not a good translation for it. So that's why. But anyway, um, the idea is if you think of these expanding concentric rings, where Stokes began with the premise that of self-preservation, that you know all creatures have a strong sense of self-preservation, and um, so it was almost a given that you're going to be kind of on the side of yourself. In, in things, even when we're beating up on ourselves, we're kind of on the side of ourselves in a way, just we're kind of an abusive parent. <laughs> but uh, you start with that self-compassion. And, and then the idea with getting to this cosmopolitanism, this creature, the citizen of the cosmos 
is that you start to have compassion for all beings by expanding outward bit by bit. And what you're expanding is your sense of self. So if I consider you a part of myself, if I'm out in nature and I consider all the things around me as a part of myself and I realize how interdependent we all are and interconnected like a single body, how we're all interactive with one another. And I start to really conceive of that deeply. It starts to expand my sense of interconnectedness and my sense of self, which the Buddhists tell us is really kind of a delusion of sorts. It's a, an abstraction. And so if self is an abstraction, that means we can apply it to the stuff going on in my brain. I can apply it to my body. I can apply it to uh, my family, my community, my planet, my society. You know, you can expand outward your sense of self. And when you truly do that, then compassion for others becomes a given. It's like a a side effect almost, because of course you're going to, place yourself in their shoes, you're going to act on their behalf because you now see them as a part of you. You see everyone as self and this expanding sense of self is very similar to what the Buddhists do when they do their loving kindness meditation. They start and they, and they say to themselves, uh, may I be happy? May, may I be content? May I prosper? And then they say, May my loved ones be happy. May they be content. May they and then they say, uh, may acquaintances be, and then they say, may my enemies be happy. May, and may uh, all beings be happy. And they start, and they go through this sort of uh, self-chant. And so it's the very same kind of thing, these outward rings of trying to expand your, your sense of self. And what all of that means is that you can't be compassionate, not truly compassionate in the technical sense they mean, without no, first knowing and having self-compassion, because it all begins there. Uh, sometimes, though, it seems that we have an easier time being compassionate with others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when that happens, that's why we use them as the example to help take a step back and... Yeah. Treat yourself like somebody else, you know? <laughs> because I don't think, it, it, as, as Lee was saying earlier about the, the inner voice, you know, that inner chatter in our head, we don't actually really pay attention to how it, the tone and the attitude that it has. If we actually paid attention to how we talk to ourselves, we'd actually see our own viewpoint of ourselves differently. I think the the criticalness, the harshness comes from not allowing ourselves to be human. We really don't. We don't allow ourselves to be human. And the reason is, is we have such a high ideal of who we think we should be that is unrealistic. We expect to be the Buddha. And we're not the Buddha now. Come on. You know, you're failing at this. You're not a good communicator. You're not getting along with people at work. You're not doing And we start listing off things that we're not doing. The difficulty is we don't expect that of others. We expect others to make mistakes. Why? Because we don't expect them to be perfect. Well, then why are we expecting ourselves to be perfect? It's that whole perfectionism thing. And I think we're set up that way because when we're growing up, we're always getting the, 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 the parent's voice in our head 
you're not doing good at school. You're not, and we don't listen to the other side of that, you know? Yes, you, you're not doing so good, but, you know, you just need to try harder. You know, we're not balancing that. We're just hearing the negative, the, the, so if you have that idea, you've got to be perfect, perfect child, perfect adult, whatever. And you will fail from that. I mean, that's none of us are, none of us will be. And we kind of intellectually know that and we apply it to others, but we don't apply it to ourselves. We just simply don't. Um, I, I, I've realized uh, in, in my spiritual journey, just how nasty I am to myself. If I was my own friend, if I was actually had a friend who talked to me the way that I talked to myself, he would not be a friend, you know, <laughs> it'd be like, uh, I don't need this. You know, I need encouragement. Well, why not be your own encourager? Yeah. Be your own best friend. And, and that's a hard place to get to where you are your own best friend. That means to be your own best friend means like you were talking about being an observer, not being a participant. Don't look at it as you yourself. Look at it as you looking at another friend, which is yourself, and then treating yourself as you would your best friend become your own best friend. You know, there's some other details uh, in some of these uh, practices and philosophies that I find really fascinating with how they uh, intersect with this. One of them is um, there's a very common misunderstanding about equanimity that happens uh, with these philosophies. When you tell people, that our goal is equanimity or our goal is inner peace or something like that. And um, what very often happens is people misunderstand when you say words like acceptance and you say like, well, these things are happening. Some, something's happening to me or around me and it's very bad or unpleasant or whatever. And uh, a lot of these uh, start practices and Buddhist practices can help in Taoists and they can help us come to terms with and, and find and have acceptance and have inner contentment despite circumstances. But what people often do is they misunderstand that to mean they under, they misunderstand acceptance to mean passivity. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to let somebody beat up on you or mistreat you or do some injustice to you, or you're going to let yourself be walked all over because you're trying to be compassionate or you're trying to be a loving being. And so you just let these things happen. Nothing in stoic practice or Buddhist practice or Taoist practice or any of these other practices that have to do with inner peace ever are meant to imply that a person make themselves a sacrifice to others and not act, uh, at, Loving yourself includes defending yourself, you know, and things like that. So, um, that, so that's such a common misunderstanding. I felt like I needed to take a little time to, to talk about that, that acceptance means an inner acceptance with what's going on. And then you do what you can do, but then you don't uh, become dependent on the outcomes of those efforts for your happiness. Um, yeah. Reminds yes. me of that. You can act against others if you need to, if that's the just and right thing to do. Um, and you can be compassionate even while working against somebody, um, if that's what you need to do 
to protect the innocent, whoever that innocent may be, yourself or others. So um, inaction is not what is meant by pass or passivity is not uh, what is meant by um, inner peace or acceptance. I think it goes back to the, uh, uh, the idea of the serenity. May I develop the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm -hmm. It really catches the, the whole balance between things I cannot change. Well, I can't change it. It is what it is. Yeah. So am I going to spend emotional energy on something I can't change? No. What I'm going to spend my energy on is the courage to change the things I can, which comes back to what you, it's not passivity. It's accepting what you cannot change. It's not accepting what you can change. You in a can, way, it even prevents you from acting in the best possible ways when you're too caught up, you know, being bound up by the things that you couldn't control. It's a distraction and it actually prevents positive action. Correct. There's another aspect to this too. Um, that, that aspect kind of covers the unethical, vicious things other people might be doing to us or to others. Uh, but then there's also the unethical, vicious things we might be inclined to do. And, um, this is a real fascinating thing to me about the nature of the relationship between ethics or virtue and, and our serenity. And, you know, in, in classical Western Abrahamic religions, uh, it's very much a, a system of rewards and punishments. Um, when you talk about ethics and that still infuses even like humanists and atheists in America, it infuses their perspective on ethics. When you say the word ethics, that's kind of how people think of that. But I've always thought it's really fascinating. The, the Eastern take on ethics is not a rewards and punishment, but it's rather about, uh, in, in with the Stoics, for example, um, their concept of virtue. It's not about, you better do this or else it's more about um, when I act in this way, it harms myself. It destroys my ability to have serenity. How can I have equanimity? Um, we talked about uh, being hard on ourselves before. Well, there's this thing innate in all human beings where uh, we have kind of a inner disliking of uh, viciousness, evil, things that go against empathy, things that go against our moral sensibilities. Even when you look at a quote unquote bad person, person who's doing all these bad things, deep down inside, they have a disrespect for that and they have a respect for goodness. Um, and that's just because of their human nature. Inside. And so what happens is if you do things that cause you to even subconsciously disrespect yourself, you, that self-hatred will come bubbling up over time. And that, I think, is the connection between virtue and happiness. Yeah, it reminds me of the Buddhist saying, you're not punished for your sins, you're punished by your sins. Hmm. So there's not there's not some objective something out there that's going to punish you. 
you're doing the things that you, sh- you know you shouldn't do will immediately disturb your peace, will immediately. That's why one of the first, there's three trainings in Buddhism. The first training is the moral and ethical. Because if you're self-sabotaging your own inner peace by doing things that are hurtful to other people, meditation is not going to work. The first thing you have to do is stop causing the, the issues that are causing you to be uncomfortable. You feel guilty because you're doing things you shouldn't be doing. Well, stop doing it. Yeah. You know, that's, to, to me, it, it's, it's ridiculous how we get caught in this trap. I get caught in this trap. We all get caught in this trap where we end up self-sabotaging. You know, it's one of those things you shoot yourself in the foot and wonder why it hurts. You know, it's like, well, why am I doing this? You know, it's because sometimes we just get so programmed from society that you have to stand up for yourself. You have to, you have to fight. You have to make sure that you're number one. Well, the difficulty with that is when you're trying to be number one, that means someone has to be number two, which means you're going to step on them. And, and, when you think of cooperation instead of competition, we're actually evolved. One of the things that uh, if you actually read Darwin, he only talked about survival of the fittest a couple times, but he talked about love continually. And that's not emphasized uh, in most evolutionary theory. But the cooperation, we're actually tuned to cooperate. Hmm. That's what makes humankind so successful. We're not stronger than the apes. We're not all these other things, but what happens is we cooperate and we actually pool our knowledge so that we have cultural uh, knowledge that we pass down from generation. One generation learns how to build the fire. He passes it down to the next. It's that cooperation, multi-generational co- cooperation and cooperation with one another. Unfortunately, we're still in the tribe mentality where, where we limit the cooperation to our tribe, but we're, we're going to have to move beyond that where it becomes a global citizen idea, not just among people, but among nature as well, where we respect the environment, we take care of the environment, we take care of animals. This biodiversity that's going away, every year we lose a species, I mean more than one, we lose species. Mm-hmm. Um, this can't continue if, if we want to survive on this planet. Yeah, it's, it's my hope that these kinds of things that we're doing and many, many other people are doing around the world are going to all eventually contribute into some kind of a background ambient push that keeps us hopefully developing a higher and higher level of awareness about these things in society. Um, so the things that we've talked about, you know, they, they're all the kinds of things that you know, a person in the middle of maybe a, um, a kind of depressed situation or maybe a, a situation where they're having trouble with self-compassion, you could tell them in words and all the things we've said, and they could acknowledge it and go, yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. It makes sense. makes sense. But um, easier said than done, right? So when somebody's in a state like this, they hear these arguments, um, but it doesn't necessarily keep their mind from continuing to go back and do that even after they've acknowledged intellectually that that's what's true. So how do we get from 
knowing this stuff technically to really making our minds, really making our, our spirit deep down react in this way, you know, how do we get out of it in terms of actual mental habit? I think you mentioned one of the Buddhist practices for this, and that's the meta practice or loving, uh, loving kindness meditation, where you begin, you know, a lot of people have problems meditating. And sometimes uh, I've heard some teachers within Buddhism say that it's actually best not to start with following your breath, but start a loving kindness meditation. And the loving kindness meditation, what you do is you get yourself relaxed, you sit down, relax, and then you repeat these phrases. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be safe. May I be content. And you continue to work on saying that. And what happens is you're reprogramming your thoughts to think of the positive. Remember I said, whatever you focus on is what you will become. So if you focus on the negative in your life, you continue to reinforce it and the negative won't go away. That's what Qui-Gon Jinn said. Your focus determines your reality. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure it determines your reality, but it at least affects it. In your um, inner reality, at least. Your inner reality, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. It definitely does. And, and that's the problem with uh, some forms of religion is they, they want you to continue to whip yourself up on your sins. Well, the problem is you're actually making the sins stronger because whatever you feed your focus is becomes the plant that grows. It's kind of like those two dogs, the, the, the black and the white dog, and whichever one you feed is the one that will be more stronger. And the, the food that they eat is focus. So instead, Buddhism takes loving mind, uh, uh, loving kindness meditation, and it says focus on that. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be content. And you continue to, to kind of, you can say that inwardly, or you can say it under your breath, as you just sit, relax, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be content. And you continue to do that, and continue to relax into that. And what happens is you begin to focus on those things, and you begin to grow that safeness, that happiness that healthiness, that contentment. You begin to look at yourself as a friend and you become your own best friend. How? Because you're looking at these good things and you're saying these good things are something you should have, something that we all deserve. There's something that doesn't depend on outward circumstances. There's something that you can cultivate. And so you're watering these great qualities by the water of focus. And it begins to train the mind. So one of the things I notice about that is that, uh, you know, it takes, it's, it's a very good practice, but it takes a person doing it, setting aside time to do it. And um, so Lee, when you walk in nature, how often do you do that? And do you have time finding time to do it? Or do you really make an effort to say, no, I, I will take this time, you know, like how, how do you integrate it with your schedule? That's an interesting question because I used to make it a practice to go for a walk every day at a specific time. 
And even doing that, I would kind of get to where I would think, well, this is exercise, you know, sometimes. Sometimes this is exercise, sometimes I'm thinking. But lately, I have noted, and from a from a practical perspective, a lot of the conversation that has uh, gone on today, I've uh, recognized different stages that I've gone through with the self-compassion. And when we were talking about the punishment and rewards, it used to be when I would recognize that I was being hard on myself and things like that, I would stop and think, oh, okay, you know, you're only human. Hey, you're, you're really feeling bad about this. What you need to do is go eat a half a gallon of ice cream. But then Jay brought up the wisdom to know the difference. And it's at that point that you need to say, well, wait a minute, you know, eating a half a gallon of ice cream might make you feel better now, but it's in the long run, it's not going to help. And so right now, um, what I do when I recognize that I am not feeling good, even, you know, getting into a slight depression or something else. I am in a position where I can get up and walk out my door at that moment. So I'm not doing scheduled walks anymore. I actually, when I recognize that I am having a problem with self-compassion, get up and walk out the door and not once when I've come back and it's usually about a 20 to 25 minute walk. Um, have I ever not gotten rid of that feeling and come back, you know, feeling better? So that's interesting because you're, you're basically saying, uh, listen to yourself, like learning to listen to what you need and respond to it. Um, that's really fascinating because it's not about a schedule or building a habit necessarily other than the habit of being aware, self-aware. Yeah. and, And it may have come from developing the habit of walking consistently before now and and I'm beginning to I haven't gotten there yet but I'm beginning to see that with meditation right now meditation is a scheduled practice for me but I think meditation is going to evolve exactly the same way to where I do it you know when I need it I will probably always need some kind of scheduled meditation but I think I will get to where it is something that I that I recognize when I need it and do it it's kind of like, you know, the adult within us is telling the child within us, you may not understand this right now, but just do it because I said so. <laughs> and then you, they do it and eventually the child starts to grow up and starts to understand, oh, okay, I thought you were being mean to me, but now I understand <laughs> you're really compassionate to me. And, you know, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I, that idea of listening to what you need when you need it instead of being tied to a schedule. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I really like that idea. The other thing that uh, I, I think Lee brought up that's really, really cool is it te- kind of teaches you. She started the practice. She got good at doing the practice of going for that walk. And now she's become aware of when she needs that walk. Mm. That's exactly how spiritual practices go. You get a, a spiritual practice, you get it down, it becomes comfortable, it comes, it's kind of like driving. At first, you have to think about everything you push the pedal, you know, turn the, turn the wheel, mm-hmm. you have to think about every single move, you, then it becomes second nature, and you, you don't have to think about it, you just do it. 
Yeah, and it's the same with the spiritual practice. You become so comfortable with it that you become aware, I need to do this. I think a lot of people listening to us right now and reading the articles on the Spiritual Nationalist Society's website and um, just coming to become interested in this, I think there's a lot of people out there that are at that stage where they're reading this stuff and they're listening to this stuff and they're really interested in it. But other than taking in the media or reading books or whatever, they haven't really begun to, it hasn't really changed what they're doing with their time. And that's really the step, you know, it's really at that moment that you start to do something different with your time than you did before, where you start putting these ideas into practice. That's really where you start to really see the power of it. It's important to have that kind of intellectual sort of, oh, what's this? And learning a little bit and all. But I, I think if you can just get yourself to, and it's hard to get over that little hump there because it's so easy for us in our day. We go to work and then, oh, here's a neat article. I read this on my break and then go home and maybe listen to something. And, you know, you kind of fit it in between where as you're taking in your various social media and all that but you're pretty much, you know, you're doing your work, home, work, home thing. And it's just, it's really hard sometimes to say, okay, tomorrow's the day. I'm going to, I'm going to try to meditate or I'm going to do this. or I'm going to start, maybe you've already meditated and you say, I'm going to start from now on. I'm going to get up a little bit earlier. I'm going to do this meditation. You know, making that little step, that little jump of actually changing what you're doing, uh, that's where the rubber meets the road. And once you start doing that, that gets back to my original question. How do you just take this from like, yeah, I understand all that stuff intellectually, but my mind keeps doing that anyway. That's where you're going to start seeing that gap between knowledge and isness of that knowledge uh, start to reduce when you start actually doing different things, putting these things into practice. Yeah, thinking different is the start, but doing different is the the real meat of it. Yeah. You know, it's good to know the principles, the ideas, but if they're not put into practice, it makes no difference in your life. Your it's mind actually, has to uh, make it real yeah. through experience. Through practice, through doing something different. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, partly it's believing. That means accepting it as true. This is something I really want to do. This is something, let's, for an example, loving mind or loving kindness meditation. It's something I'm going to do. I'm going to sit down and actually do it starting tomorrow. That is what makes the difference mm. is doing something different because we, we think that changing what we think is going to make a difference. No, changing what we think sets us up for the opportunity to do something that actually makes the difference. And that's why our talk about ritual and the importance of ritual, the importance of ritual is that actually reprogramming our, our thinking. Mm -hmm. It's like anything. It's the actual, it's the, the, the proof is in the pudding. It's in the eating. It's in the doing that you begin to realize the reality behind the words. Otherwise, it's just words. Everything we said this entire podcast, if you don't do something different, is just words and you've wasted an hour of your time. It's when you actually do something that it makes a difference in your life 
and you begin to actually respond different to the situations. You begin to have compassion on yourself. Let yourself out the hood. Let yourself be human. Become your own best friend. And becoming your own best friend means not just, you know, forgiving yourself, letting yourself off the hook. It also means getting yourself on the right track. What are you going to do? You're not going to let a friend self-sabotage. You're going to encourage them to be better. And that's what you need to do to encourage yourself to be better by focusing on those virtues, those practices that will make you better, make you more loving, make you more kind, make you more compassionate. Yep. Well, um, Jay, I really appreciate you uh, coming up with the idea for this topic today. Uh, It was a great idea. I think we've had a a wonderful episode here and um, I appreciate you being with us too, Lee, um, and all your input and everything. Um, We're getting pretty close to the, to our time here. Um, Is there anything uh, Lee that you wanted to add before we close out? No, I think we've covered it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you both again uh, so much. And thank you to our listeners uh, for listening. We've, uh, we're, we're always getting in some comments uh, now and then from people that have listened and uh, got a really nice letter the other day uh, to someone who was talking about uh, how they've been reading our articles and how it's uh, been uh, making them consider new things. And it's always encouraging to hear about that. So if y'all have comments, go to our website and leave comments there or write us or uh, whatever you want to do, uh, tell friends about our podcast, but we really appreciate y'all listening and, uh, Until next time, uh, we'll see y'all then. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. Jay Forrest is our technical director. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.